guys, how are we? Are we good? Good to be with you. All right, so grab your sheet and follow with me. Um, tonight we're in week two of our Connect series. Hope you enjoyed it so far. Um, tonight we've got part two of Connect to Christ. And before I jump in, I just want to give you a quick uh, book recommendation. Um, this book called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart, How to Know for Sure You're Saved. It kind of has a funny title, but um, this is a great book. Like if you wrestle with uh, kind of having confidence in your salvation and knowing for sure um, if you're saved or not, I would highly suggest this book. And a lot of what we're going to talk about tonight uh, comes from what's in this book. So uh, I just want to point that out to you. Um, our t in our time tonight, uh, it's going to be a little more informational, and so I'm hoping that as we fly through some of the stuff that's got a lot of depth, um, that you'll be able to really uh, unpack it in your groups tonight and be able to make it personal in your groups tonight, and that your group leaders will be able to, to really uh, kind of take the information that we're going to go through and really be able to flesh it out with you guys. Uh, so tonight, if you're going to follow along with me, I'll try to go as quick as possible because I know we're limited on time. Um, to remind you of last week, last week uh, as we looked at 1 John 4, 7 to 20, we talked about how God is love, that God is love. It's not just that God is like really loving or he's got all this love to give. No, he is love. And it was in love and motivated by love that he sends Jesus to earth uh, to save us and give us eternal life. Uh, it's because of God's love that we can be connected to Christ, and if we're connected to Christ, then we're connected with God. And if God's love is in us, God's love is in us, then we'll begin to love other people like we saw last week. And one of the uh, greatest ways that we can love other people is through telling other people about God's love. And so we have to ask the question tonight, is God's love in us? So ask yourself, is God's love in you? Are you sure that you're saved? Are you sure that you're saved? This is an important question because biblically there are people in the Bible that thought they were saved and weren't saved. I want to show you a few examples. Um, real quick in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he makes this statement. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so could you imagine being one of those people that Jesus was talking to, that they were doing great things in the name of Jesus. They were prophesying. They were casting out demons. It says they're doing other mighty works in the name of Jesus. But Jesus says, I don't even know you, so depart from me. Then in John chapter 2, verses 23 to 24, uh, Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. And it says that many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So he was working these miracles, he just turned water into wine, and so they are seeing this, and they're starting to believe in his name, but it says in verse 24, but Jesus, on his part, didn't trust himself to
to them, entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. And it says, for he himself knew what was in man. So apparently there was something in their hearts that he saw that wasn't, it wasn't really about Jesus. He wasn't really, uh, they weren't connecting to him. It was just kind of about the things that he was doing. Their heart wasn't really for him. And then in Luke chapter 8, 11 to 15, this is probably a passage you're more familiar with. Uh, when Jesus gives the parable of the sower, and you know this story where he kind of talks about uh, this farmer that's sowing seeds, and he said, this is like when the word of God goes out. But he says that there are often times when the word of God goes out and people receive it. And a lot of times they receive it with joy and excitement, but for a variety of reasons, it doesn't take root and it dies out. And so there are these people that, man, they for a moment, think that they know Jesus and think that they're saved, but according to Jesus, they're really not. They're really not. In a Barna study in 2011, the book points this out, that half of all American adults, 50% of American adults at some point in their life have prayed a prayer, like the sinner's prayer to receive Jesus in their heart, yet there are a lot of those people that they're not marked by any kind of real change. They're not um, consistent with church. They don't read their Bible. Their life doesn't look any different than any other person in the world. And so it would seem like a lot of those people, that's millions of people, don't actually know Jesus, but they think they do. I know for me, I remember when I was in sixth grade, and I went to, like, my first youth event. It was a disciple now in sixth grade. And uh, on one of the nights, they gave an altar call. And so because of some of my friends that they went down to receive Jesus, I thought I needed to, too. And so I went down to the front, and they led a prayer, and I prayed the prayer. And so by what people were telling me, I, that meant that I was saved because I said that prayer. Thankfully, you guys aren't, you know, taught that today, but... Uh, we were, that if you said those words, it meant that you were saved, even though I definitely wasn't saved. Um, there was no repentance in my life. I didn't really understand the gospel of Jesus, and so it wasn't until later on when I was in high school that I was. And so again, let me ask you, is the love of God in you? Are you sure that you're saved? Now, hear this part, okay? This is a really, really important part. I want you to hear this. Um, and I want to read it from my notes so I don't mess it up. I want you to hear this. That passages like these shouldn't lead us to feel insecure about our faith. They should lead us to seek a true understanding of the gospel of Jesus, which gives us confidence in our salvation. So those are a lot of big words, but hear this. Those passages that kind of probably, like me, like I, I hear that and, man, I start doubting myself, right? But these passages shouldn't lead you to feel insecure about your faith or make you just kind of think, well, maybe I'm not saved. No, it should push you towards trying to understand the gospel better, to be more confident about what the true gospel of Jesus is. And when you are, then you'll know if you're saved or not. And when you do, then you'll have more confidence in your salvation. And when you're more confident about your salvation, you're more confident about telling other people about Jesus, right? Y'all with me? So let's first, let me show you that, that I think that the Bible teaches that God wants you to be sure about your salvation, be sure about your faith. Um, there's one instance in the book of John, in, in chapter 14 and 15, Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples. 
And it's kind of like that last conversation before he goes to the cross. Let me fix this. So, in that conversation, he addresses them in three different ways, which are really significant because he tells, it's telling how he views his disciples. So one of the ways he describes them is, is he's talking to them like they're children. In John chapter 14, verse 18, he says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. So he says, you're like my children. And so I know for me as a father, there's nothing that I want more than for my girls to be confident that I love them and that I'm their father and that we have a relationship that will never be broken. That's what I want. Like, I don't put them to bed and, and say, you know, hey, you know, daddy loves you. Or maybe he doesn't. Maybe I'm not really your daddy. Good night. You know, like, I don't, I don't do that. Like, I want them to be confident. I want them to know that, that I love them and that they have a relationship with me, right? Um, it, J.D. Greer in his book, he says that God changes, encourages, and motivates, motivates us not by the uncertainty of fear, but by the security of love. Let me say that again because I messed it up. God changes, encourages, and motivates us not by the uncertainty of fear, but by the security of love. So often people think that, well, maybe a better way to go, maybe God wants you to not be sure so that you'll be really good, hoping that you'll kind of uh, be good enough for him. But, but he says, no, that, that, that's not what God does. God doesn't motivate, change, encourage you by making you fearful that maybe you don't have a relationship. No, he motivates you by his love. He encourages you with his love. Um, he changes you by his love. Um, and whenever you know that, you become more confident. I remember when we first kind of started getting connected back with this church a few years ago. And my daughter Addie was three or four at the time. And whenever we were first coming around, she was really nervous around a lot of people, especially around a lot of guys. Remember that, Andrew? Uh, she was just scared of, of older guys. And she, she didn't really want them talking to them or especially picking them up. When they did, she freaked out, right? She wasn't confident in her relationship with all these other guys she was just meeting. But when it came to me, her father, she wanted me to pick her up. She didn't just want me to pick her up. She wanted me to, like, pick her up and throw her in the air. And this was this whole other side that other people didn't get to see. But I saw because she had confidence in our relationship. But she was sure that I loved her and that she loved me. And so when you have that confidence, when you have that security of love, uh, you become more confident again, and especially in how you share that love with other people. And so Jesus says, hey, disciples, you're my children. He also calls them uh, they're his betrothed, which is kind of like, um, think of like a fiancé, right? So before you would become a bride, you would be the fiancé or the betrothed. In verses 1 to 3 of John chapter 14, he talks about how uh, he's going to leave, but he's preparing a place for them. And the language that he gives there is like a groom that would be like preparing a home for the bride, like, I'm going to take care of things. I'm going to set things up for you. We're going to be a family. You're going to be my bride. That's the language that he gives, right? And so whenever that's the case, I don't know who maybe in the room maybe has been uh, married the most recent, but I know, like, Andrew's been married. Uh, that was like a year or two ago or so. Okay, about a year ago. And I can promise you that leading up to his wedding, he wanted Anna to be, like, secure in their relationship, you know? Like, he wanted her to be confident that, I love you, and I marry you, and I'm providing for you. And that's the same thing with Jesus and us. He wants us to be secure in that relationship. And then he also calls them friends. In 15, uh, John 15, verse 15, he says, 
I no longer call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. And so even though for me, like with my friends, I really like to give them a hard time, but I want them to know that, um, that I care about them and I'm there for them and they can have confidence in my relationship with them. I don't want them to feel insecure about that, and I feel like Jesus wants that too. Um, and then kind of in the main text that we're going to look at tonight in 1 John, I look at your sheet and look at the top. Um, look at the last verse in that passage, 1 John 5.13. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know you have eternal life. So uh, what did John write for us to know? Well, really kind of the whole book of 1 John, but for us tonight, let's take a look at the few verses right before he says that, that I want you to know that you have eternal life. And so let's read together verses 10 to 12, uh, and then we'll break it down a little bit. So 1 John 5, verses 10 to 12 says, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God is born concerning, him, concerning his son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. And so what we're going to talk about tonight is we're going to talk about strengthening the, the assurance of your salvation. Strengthening the assurance of your salvation. And so... If we want to sum up a lot of what Jesus says there, it's this. It's the first point you have, kind of the main point, is for you to be assured of your salvation is to believe in God's testimony of eternal life through Jesus. Believe in God's testimony of eternal life through Jesus. And we're going to talk about some different components of this that we see in this passage. John says to believe in God's testimony of eternal life through Jesus. One thing he talks about, in, talks about in this passage, he says that for everyone there will be eternal life or eternal death. And I know you're getting there, but for everyone there will be eternal life or eternal death. In verse 12 it says, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. And so there's uh, two contrasting pictures here. If you have the Son, you have life. You have eternal life. You have a relationship with God. You have eternal joy and peace. You have eternal life. But if not, you don't have eternal life. And so what's that? That's eternal death. That's an eternal separation from God. And so for everyone, it's eternal life or eternal death, one or the other, no in between. And then B, look at B. It says, we don't have eternal life. We don't deserve eternal life. We can't earn eternal life. This is an important part of the gospel, that we don't have eternal life, we don't deserve it, and we can't earn it. If you look at verse 11, it says, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. So for God to give something to you, it's because you didn't have it in the first place, right? And so for us, we know that we're born with a sin nature, that that nature that um, kind of started with Adam, because he sinned, that's been in all of mankind. We've been passing it on from generation to generation. So we're born with this sin nature. We have this natural inclination to uh, rebel against 
God and rebel against the things of God. And so we don't have eternal life. We don't deserve it because of our sin, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we can't earn it. Because of that sin, uh, we can never be good enough or earn our way to eternal life. Again, we've fallen short of the glory of God. So we don't have it, we don't deserve it, and we can't earn it. And so that's the bad news, but here's the good news. Look at C. It's that eternal life is in Jesus. Eternal life is in Jesus. He deserves it. He earned it for us. Okay? Eternal life is in Jesus. He deserves it. He earned it for us. If you look at verse 11, it says, and this life is in his son. It's in Jesus. There's another verse in 1 John that I want to read to you. It's 1 John 2, verses 1 to 2. It says this. It says, my little children... I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins, not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. And so did you hear that? Now, you've got to understand he's talking to Christians, and so he's trying to encourage them to not sin. And so he says, if you do, but if you're in a place where you don't know Jesus, you're not a child of God, then, then you're already in that place. And so regardless, he says, if there's sin in you, if you sin, then you have an advocate who's Jesus the righteous, who was the propitiation for our sins. And so there's two roles that Jesus is described as in this passage. First is he's our advocate. He's our advocate, which means that he pleads our case before the judge. And so think of like a court scene and think of a lawyer. And it says that Jesus is like that. That the, the father is like the judge, and so he is pleading your case. But the difference here is that he doesn't argue for your innocence. He doesn't say, hey, look how good Dominic is. I mean, I know he's kind of messed up, but he's also done a lot of good things. That's not what Jesus does as our advocate. Jesus points to his goodness and his righteousness. It, uh, and it, it, it's in, his, in our place that he argues that. So he's our advocate in second. He's our propitiation. Propitiation, that's a big word that just means satisfying of wrath. That Jesus satisfied the wrath of God. It's to pay full restitution. Uh, probably a couple months ago, I was with some friends, and we brought our kids to the Weaver Park baseball field. And uh, we were letting our kids play. We were kind of pitching them, you know, letting them hit. And we were having a good old time. Well, a couple hours in, the kids were getting tired, so we let them go have a snack. And when you get a bunch of, uh, you know, my age kind of guys together, um, we want to relive the glory days, you know. And so it was, okay, hey, let's, you know, throw a couple pitches to each other. So I threw a couple pitches. I don't know, Chris Stanford threw him a couple pitches. He hits a couple over. He does well, you know. Uh, then he's like, hey, you want to hit? I'm like, of course. And so he throws me one pitch, inside pitch, and I turn on it. And I crank it, and it's going over the left field fence, and it's going out a tree. And as I'm looking at it, I see that there is a van going down Weaver Road. I'm like, please no, hit the tree. Please hit the tree. It goes right through the tree and smokes that van. So he pulls in, and he's mad, and he jumps out, and then he sees like five or six guys that are all bigger than him. So he kind of backs off a little bit, and he's like, oh, hey, uh, you kind of hit my van. 
So because it was my fault, because I did something to him, I had to pay for that, right? And I had to pay it fully. I had to pay restitution. And so it ended up being almost $700 to get that little baseball dent fixed in this guy's van. But I had to pay that, right? Because it was my fault. And in a similar sense, when we come before God, our sin has a cost. You know what that cost is? It's death. It's death. And we have to pay it in full. Or somebody else could pay it in full. And so that's what Jesus has done for us. That when he came to earth and he lived that perfect life, when he was on the cross, he took your place there. And so on the cross, God pours out all of his wrath on Jesus, even though we deserved it. He took on our sin. And he satisfied it all. He was a propitiation for our sin. So I'm going to do something tonight that you're not supposed to do in youth ministry. I'm going to read you something, okay? This is like, you don't read them like a page in a book. But I'm going to do that because there's a part of this book that is so good that I wanted you to hear it. And it explains this so well um, that I just knew that I couldn't do it justice unless I just read it to you. So I'm going to try to read it dynamically, but can you guys follow along if I read you for just a few minutes? Can I do that? All right, here we go. You'll follow with me. Okay. This little chapter or this little part is called Jesus, our high priest. Listen to this. The Old Testament prophet, Zechariah, writing 500 years before Jesus was born on earth, gives us an incredible picture of the security Jesus' propitiatory work provides to us. Zechariah saw a vision of a high priest named Joshua about to enter the presence of God. A little background. High priests offered a yearly sacrifice on Yom Kippur, literally the Day of Atonement. They would enter the Holy of Holies, the place in the Jewish temple where the presence of God dwelt. God's glory rested upon the top of the Ark of the Covenant kept there, between the images of two cherubim mounted there. The Holy of Holies was separated from the rest of the temple by a thick veil, and could be entered only one time a year by the Most High Priest. On Yom Kippur, the High Priest would go in, sprinkle the blood of a clean animal sacrifice upon the top of the ark, and thereby propitiate the anger of God against the sins of the people of Israel. The High Priest was to make meticulous preparation to enter the Holy of Holies on that day, for he was coming into the very presence of God. If any defilement were found upon him, the book of Leviticus says he would he would struck down sorry he would be struck down in God's presence. Some traditions say that small bells were placed on the edge of his robe and rope tied around his ankle so that if he were struck down they could drag out his corpse without exposing themselves. So this last part might be a legend. Old Testament scholar Ray Dillard describes the intense process leading up to this moment. Listen to this. It says a week beforehand the high priest was put into seclusion, taken away from his home and into a place where he was completely alone. Why? So he wouldn't accidentally touch or eat anything unclean. Clean food is brought to him, and he'd wash his body and prepare his heart. The night before the Day of Atonement, he didn't go to bed. He stayed up all night praying and reading God's word to purify his soul. Then on Yom Kippur, he bathed head to toe and dressed in pure, unstained white linen. Then he went into the Holy of Holies and offered an animal sacrifice to God to atone or pay the penalty for his own sins. 
After that, he came out and bathed completely again. And new white linen was put on him, and he went in again, this time sacrificing for the sins of the priests. But that's not all. He would come out a third time, and he bathed again from head to toe, and they dressed him in brand new pure linen. And he went into the Holy of Holies and atoned for the sins of all the people. This was all done in public. The temple was crowded, and those in attendance watched closely. There was a thin screen, and he bathed behind it. But the people were present. They saw him bathe, dress, go in, come back out. He was their representative before God, and they were there cheering him on. They were very concerned to make sure everything was done properly and with purity because he represented them before God. So to his horror, jumping back to Zechariah, to his horror, Zechariah sees Joshua, his high priest, about to enter the Holy of Holies, but covered in human excrement. You know what that is? Covered in poo-poo, okay? This was a disaster, not only for Joshua, but for the people of Israel. This moment of, rep- of representation by the high priest was their hope of forgiveness. Just as Zechariah despairs, however, he hears the Lord speak, and this is what God says. Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, see, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. That's Zechariah 3, 4, and 9. God had given Zechariah a vision of how we all, even the most religious among us, look to God as we approach him and a promise to remove that defilement from us forever in a single day. Tim Keller explains, centuries later, another Joshua, this is the part you got to hear, another Joshua showed up, another Yeshua. Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, it's the same name in Aramaic. Greek and Hebrew. He staged his own, his own day of atonement. One week beforehand, Jesus began to prepare. And the night before, he didn't go to sleep. But what happened to Jesus was exactly the reverse of what happened to Joshua the high priest. Because instead of cheering him on, nearly everyone he loved betrayed, abandoned, or denied him. And when he stood before God, instead of receiving words of encouragement, the Father forsook him. Instead of being clothed in rich garments, he was stripped. Of, of the only garment he had. He was beaten and he was killed naked. He was bathed in human spit. Before God were like filth-covered Yeshua that Zechariah saw. But because a new Yeshua, who was perfect, was clothed in our filth and suffered its consequences. We can put on the garments of righteousness because Jesus, who deserved commendation, received condemnation instead. We deserve condemnation, but we receive commendation. Jesus took our sin, serving the full weight of its penalty. In return, he offers us his righteousness. When we're united to Christ, what is ours becomes his, and what is his becomes ours. And so you could sum up the gospel in four words, Jesus in my place. So what do you do with this? What do you do with this truth that Jesus stepped in your place and took the penalty that you deserve so that you can have life and forgiveness? What do you do? Well, you respond by biblically believing. We must biblically believe, he says. And I'll go into that just really quickly. To biblically believe includes a few things. It's to repent of sin and self-reliance. To repent of sin and self-reliance. To turn from your sin and also to turn from any thought that you have that you can save yourself or you deserve eternal life. You've got to turn from all of that knowing that it's only through Christ that you can be saved. 
Biblically believing also means trusting in Jesus as your, as your Savior. Knowing that He is who He says He is and what He did on the cross was for you and that you needed that. And then also, it means to obey Jesus as Lord. So if you believe that Jesus is your Savior, that He is the Son of God, then that's going to mean that you submit His authority and you obey Him as Lord. That's what it means to biblically believe. And so just to wrap up, I want you to take a look. I think this is at the bottom of your paper. I want you to think about this statement, this quote from the book that says this. It says, when you receive Christ, all that is yours becomes his, and all that is his becomes yours. He took responsibility for your sin, judgment, and corruption, and bestowed upon you his righteousness, sonship, and intimacy with the Father. Jesus plus nothing equals assurance. Jesus plus nothing equals assurance. Assurance isn't found in you. It isn't found in how good you are. It isn't isn't found in how you kind of feel right now. If you understand the gospel, that Jesus did everything that you needed to make you right with God, then your assurance is found in him and him alone. And that's how you can have assurance in your faith, in the finished work of Jesus. So let me pray for you guys. And I think uh, Sam will... Uh, lead us in one more song, and then you'll go to your groups. Dear God, uh, we just pray that um, that your word would just begin to examine our hearts, that even though uh, we rush through a lot of heavy truth really quickly, um, I just pray that your Holy Spirit can do a work in our hearts that um, that maybe sometimes our, our minds can't do. And so I pray that that will be the truth. Um, that our spirits would connect with your word and that it would begin to uh, begin to change us. I pray for the students tonight that, um, that know well that, um, that they don't know you. And so I pray that they would, that you would put in them a desire to know you and that they would repent and they would turn to you and trust in you for salvation. Uh, for those that know you, for those that are children of God, I pray that you would just, uh, through your Holy Spirit, that you would, um, Reach out to them and assure them that they are your children, that you love them, and that they're secure in you. Uh, I pray that you would bless our times and our groups, uh, that they would be uh, beneficial and God-honoring. I thank you for the leaders that are leading those. I pray that you would bless them. God, we love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.